All right, if you want to make your way to a seat. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Merry Christmas. If we don't, if we don't have the chance to see you um, on Christmas Eve. Uh, we're, we pray that you and your family, uh, wherever you might be, uh, just have a really blessed time, opportunity to celebrate uh, the Savior with your family, whether that's here with us on Christmas Eve or somewhere else, and then uh, pray that your Christmas Day is a wonderful opportunity not just to enjoy all the things that come with Christmas, but a, a wonderful opportunity to reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ and to enjoy that with your family. And so... Uh, I would actually like to pray that uh, for our congregation, and then we'll get started this morning. Uh, God, thank you so much for this season. Lord, for the chance to celebrate the birth of our Savior. God, to celebrate the fact that in redeeming us, you sent your Son to be among us, and that he lived humbly, willingly in the brokenness of our world, that he suffered and died in our place on the cross, that he rose triumphantly on the third day, that he ascended and is seated at your right hand. Uh, God, this season is an opportunity to celebrate the beginning of all of that, his birth, his incarnation, his entering into the world. God, I pray that uh, each family here in our congregation, each person in our congregation over the next few days uh, would find quiet, still time in order to reflect on that, to be joyful in that, to express gratitude to you individually for the birth of your son. Lord, I pray that as a congregation uh, that we would represent among our families and the people that we interact with this holiday season, God, that we would represent something counter to just uh, business as usual Christmas in America. But God, would you show us opportunities in those times where we can insert the truth of Scripture, the truth of the real celebration of Jesus Christ, that we would capitalize on those opportunities um, not just internally, though I pray that there are chances to do that, Lord, but that you would also embolden us and empower us to capitalize on those externally and to share that with our families and um, allow others to know why it is that we rejoice in the way that we do during the Christmas season and why it is that we have the hope that we have. Um, God, I pray that this Christmas season would be an opportunity for the gospel to go forth that we would be bold in sharing not just about the birth of Jesus, but also about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, God, thank you for this season. Thank you for this congregation and church family to celebrate it alongside. Uh, we praise you for Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, this morning, uh, we're on the backside. It, it, I don't know if you're aware. We're on the backside of the winter solstice. It just happened. The shortest day of the year. And so those of you who... Um, really don't, you know, enjoy the darkness of winter. It gets lighter and lighter and lighter from this point forward. 
Um, but one of the great things about living in the Midwest is that we get all four seasons. Now, that might not be something that you particularly enjoy, but here in Kansas City, we get all four seasons typically in their most intense form. We get really hot and really humid in the summer. We can get really cold and really snowy and icy in the winter. We can get all of the intense storms of the spring, and then we get very beautiful falls. And there tends to be a point in each of the transitions of those seasons where it's like the first big cold front pushes in for the fall. And everything, it's like the air changes, feels less heavy, it's cooler, the breeze shifts around, and now it's from the north, or at least not from the south. It doesn't feel like a dog is breathing in your face anymore when the wind blows. Right? We get the same coming out of the winter into the spring. There's the first kind of warm front that pushes through, and all of you warm weather lovers get that feeling of, hey, it's not just freezing anymore. It's warm. Everything changes around those particular times. The air changes, the feel changes, the scenery starts to change. In spring, everything comes to life. In the fall, everything changes colors. Your mood might change a little bit with the changing of the seasons. Right now, we just entered into official winter. It's cold. It's just going to be this way until like March. Tell yourself it's going to be this way until April. Then you won't be cranky in March. <laughs> but there are points in the year where everything changes. This is going to take a little bit of effort today in Hebrews chapter 7, but the payoff is really beautiful. So clear out whatever Christmas brain you have going on. Open up your Bibles. Put one mark in Hebrews chapter 7 and another in Psalm 110. Because kind of like we did last week, we're going to have to work in two places in order to understand what Hebrews 7 verses 11 to 22 are doing. And let me give a reminder. If you were here with us last week, we started this conversation about Melchizedek. And uh, I made two points that are going to be also true today. The first of those two points is that the intent of this passage is to understand Jesus, not to understand Melchizedek. He is an interesting figure, but the point is not to just have more information about an Old Testament figure. The point is to have a better understanding of Jesus. And then the second is that in this chapter where there's a comparison happening between Melchizedek and Jesus, it's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. It's that Melchizedek is like Jesus. If you weren't here with us, you didn't have a chance to listen on the podcast, let me give you a brief recap of the first 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 7. We get this uh, allusion to the Old Testament figure Melchizedek. You can read about him in Genesis chapter 14. That reading will be very short because it's only three verses. But in Melchizedek, there are these surprising things coming together. He's both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He's a king and a priest at the same time. That's not something that the Old Testament made a provision for. It's not something the Old Testament allowed. It would have been surprising to read about as a Jewish person. In Melchizedek, both peace and righteousness sit alongside each other. His name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, being king of Salem. Salem is Peace. He's the king of the city of peace. Peace and righteousness together. That would have been surprising. You didn't look for peace from your priest. You looked for righteousness 
from the priest. You look for peace from the king. But because he operates in both roles, he brings the two together. There's this interesting component of time and timelessness coming together. It's a very concrete place where Melchizedek enters into the Old Testament biblical story. And yet you also, in that telling in Genesis 14 and here in Hebrews, we're told that he's got no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end. It's not that he is immortal or eternal. It's that his priesthood goes on forever. And then last, blessing and honor come together in a surprising manner. And that manner is that it's not that Abraham blesses Melchizedek, which is what we would have expected because Abraham is going to bless the nations. It's that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And the point is that Abraham is lesser than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater. But the bigger point is that Jesus is even greater than Melchizedek. Because in Jesus, we have a king and a priest. The king of kings and the great high priest. We've got peace and righteousness coming together in one person, in Jesus. The king of righteousness and the prince of peace is what the Bible tells us. We have the timeless one who is eternal, no beginning, and will have no end entering into human time. And then last, he brings ultimate blessing and we are to give him immediate honor. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. We're going to continue that discussion today, but in order to do so, we're going to have to understand Psalm 110. It's quoted two different times here in these verses. Similar to last week, we'll have to work in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there are two words that are going to frame our conversation here this morning. Those two words are perfection and access. The main point is this, that Jesus' birth changes everything. Jesus' birth changes everything. Let me read Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 22. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, this is from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. There's the word of the Lord. We're going to pick our way through that, but we're going to start in Psalm 110. So if you've got that marked, go ahead and flip back to it, or on your phone, just click over to it. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament chapters in the New Testament. In fact, it's quoted eight different places in the New Testament, one time by Jesus himself. And we need to understand what's happening in Psalm 110 in order to be able to understand what the author of Hebrews is doing with it in Hebrews 7. But understanding Psalm 110 can be a little bit tricky. If you've got a CSB Bible uh, like I use when I teach on Sunday mornings, you'll notice that the heading of Psalm 110 is 
the priestly king. That's what we've been talking about in Melchizedek. If you've got an ESV, you'll notice that the heading in Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand. That sounds like Hebrews 1. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God on high. But it begins like this. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Our English translation doesn't give us a lot of help there. In fact, both of those words, Lord, are most likely capitalized in your translation. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, though, it says this is the declaration of Yahweh, sovereign God of the universe, to Adon, A-D-O-N, master. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my master. Now, David is the author of Psalm 110, the great king of Israel. To a Jewish individual, man or woman, David has no master. He's the great king. And yet here he is saying, this is something that Yahweh, the God of the universe, has said to my master. And then look through the rest of it. Yahweh is saying to David's master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your, that's Adon, your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your, of your youth belongs to you. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. That's Adon. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In English, that's tricky. Trying to separate out who is speaking and what Lord are we talking about. But the point is this. Yahweh is saying to the master of David that Yahweh will extend this master's scepter. Yahweh has sworn an oath to David's master that he will be a priest forever. David's master will crush kings. He will rule over the nations. What's going on here? David's looking forward to a Messiah. That's what's happening in Psalm 110. In fact, David's announcing unequivocally to the Jewish people, and I'm not that person. I'm not the Messiah. That was a commonly held belief among Jewish individuals at the time of David's life. This must be the one who has come and is going to liberate us, going to free us, going to be our Messiah figure. And David is saying, not only is it not me, but I'm looking forward to one who's entirely different. He will be of a different mold than the law could possibly provide for. Why? Verse 4. The Lord has sworn an oath, Yahweh has sworn an oath, and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. This priest isn't going to be your standard Israelite priest. This Messiah will not just be an Israelite king. The victory that Yahweh will bring through this person isn't going to come through the standard Old Testament model. Instead, what David is being shown 
and what he's recording for his people is that this coming conqueror will be in the mold of a shadowy Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. Two places where Melchizedek gets mentioned at all in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, verse 4. David's looking forward to a Messiah who fits the priest-king mold of Melchizedek. Kinghood and priesthood, peace and righteousness, time and timelessness, blessing and honor. About 250 years later, Isaiah puts specificity on this prophecy. We read and cherish this passage at this time of year. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. You have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given for us, and the government will be on his shoulders. That sounds like a king. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. That sounds like a priest. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the, do, the domain will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David, there's a king, and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness, there's a priest, from now and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. What was David looking forward to in about 1000 B.C.? that kind of Messiah. 250 years before Isaiah put that specificity on it. That's what Psalm 110 is about. David looking forward, a Messiah is going to come, he'll be in the mold of Melchizedek, a priest king who brings righteousness and peace along with him, who's this interesting figure that enters into time in a way that we don't entirely understand, gives blessing, and is worthy of of honor. Isaiah comes along 250 years later and says, it's coming in the form of a child. The government will be on his shoulders. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. Run that in the background here as we go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And keep in mind that the point is to understand Jesus, not to understand Melchizedek. Melchizedek is like Jesus, not vice versa. That's what, those are the two things we need to keep in mind while we do this in Hebrews chapter 7. Because we're going to jump back to verses 11 to 22, run the Psalm 110 stuff in the background, and try to understand what it is that we're seeing. I think it'll be most clear if we do this in groups, verses that are grouped by theme or idea rather than in a linear fashion. This is one of the places in the book of Hebrews where unlike Paul, who works in a very straight line, things are a little more circular here. Let me get a bit of a running start. If you're opened up to Hebrews chapter 7, look back up to verse 9. In a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's the end of the line of thought from the first ten verses. That Levi was in Abraham when Abraham paid his tithe to Melchizedek. He was in him in the sense that Levi hadn't been born yet. In him in the sense that we say we were in Adam when Adam sinned. That same sort of logic. And therefore, if Abraham pays a tithe and Levi is in Abraham and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, 
Melchizedek must also be greater than Levi, and therefore the Levitical priests. That's where Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 ends. 11 then picks up by saying, now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to appear? The point, the Old Testament priesthood could not provide perfection. There's our first word. Perfect. Verses 11, 18, and 19 are all built around that idea. If perfection could come through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to appear said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? Look at 18. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We use the word perfect as a comparative word. It's January 1st. You haven't seen someone in a while because they traveled for the Christmas break. You say, hey, how was Christmas with your family? They say, oh, it was perfect. They're disregarding the fact that on the drive to Grandma Sally's house, their 14-month-old had the blowout to end all blowouts in the car seat. They had to pull over and like try to figure out a way to hose that thing off on the side of the highway. Aunt Janine totally burnt the dinner, but it was okay because there was some other stuff to eat. Little Johnny didn't get the exact thing that he wanted and threw a fit during the present opening. But upon review, on the whole, it was wonderful. And so we say it was perfect. Even when we talk about a pitcher who throws a perfect game, they faced 27 batters, they got 27 outs. But we disregard the fact that a couple of times they left a curveball hanging up in the zone and the batter crushed it. It just happened to be that the shortstop was standing in the perfect spot and recorded the out. If you asked the pitcher if they threw perfect pitches the entire game, they would tell you no. Maybe the closest we get to actually using the word perfect correctly is when we say that someone bowled a perfect game. 300 pins available. They legitimately knocked all 300 down. They had to have bowled pretty close to perfectly in order to do it. But perfect isn't a comparative word. It's a superlative. It isn't that a perfect thing just happens to be better than other things. The perfect thing is perfect. No flaw. No capacity for anything less than perfection. The word for perfect used throughout this passage is the word teleosis, T-E-L-E-I-O-S-I-S. It's a lot of vowels. It means to bring to perfection, uh, completion, fulfillment, or accomplishment. Teleosis has the root word tele, which is the same root word that Jesus used when he cries out, it is finished while he's on the cross. Tetelestai, T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. It is over. It is finished. It is accomplished. It has been perfected. What was Jesus talking about in that moment? Salvation. It's over. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. What could the law not bring to completion, perfection, or accomplishment? Salvation couldn't do it. It could not pay the cost 
of sin. What's the gist here? The Old Testament priesthood and system of sacrifices could not fully pay the cost of sin and present a person perfect before the Lord. In the words of verses 18 and 19, it was weak and unprofitable. Those are strong words. Is the author of Hebrews saying that everything the Lord said in the Old Testament is somehow flawed? No. The Old Testament law and priesthood had a myriad of benefits, but perfection was not one of them, nor was that the intent. In fact, what the Old Testament law and priesthood did was highlight the gulf that existed between imperfect humanity and perfect God. It could not bridge the gap, but it could shine a light on its existence. In that sense, the law and the priesthood was incredibly helpful. Paul says in Romans that he wouldn't know what coveting was if the law hadn't defined it for him. The law is supremely valuable in that way. But when it comes to providing the perfection needed for humanity to stand in the presence of God, it was weak and unprofitable. It couldn't do it. The author of Hebrews sees that. We see that today on this side of the cross. David saw it in 1000 B.C. And he said, Yahweh says to my master that you will come and you will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Something different than what the Old Testament law is offering us. Something else was needed. Something that could provide perfection. That something is Jesus. And when perfection arrived, the imperfect passed away. Look at verses 12 to 17. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah. And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on the legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life, for it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jump down to verse 20. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. In Jesus... Perfection is possible. He's annulled the old that could not bring perfection and has brought the new, which can. His birth changed everything. He was of a different order entirely than what the Old Testament law outlined. And yet he was the complete fulfillment of everything the Old Testament law and priesthood points toward. We talked last week. The object casts a shadow. Jesus has existed in this king-priest form for all of eternity, and he's cast that shadow forward through all of the law, through all of the Old Testament priesthood, and he's come now to fulfill it. He's from the tribe of kings, Judah. That's the tribe of David. He's not from the tribe of priests. That's the tribe of Levi. He didn't become a priest based on his physical descent. And because he didn't become a priest by his physical descent, he's ushering in something new. He became a priest by an oath, a promise from the Lord, the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Psalm 110, verse 1. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. His life is indestructible. It's timeless. His priesthood is now eternal. It's not Levitical. It's something different. It's in the mold of Melchizedek. 
It's in the order of Melchizedek. That's what David's looking forward to in Psalm 110. The one who will come and make perfection possible. The one who will do so according to the order, not of Levi, but to the order of this priest king Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is saying, here he is. That person is Jesus. He always has been. The Old Testament law could not make us perfect. When perfection arrived in Jesus, the imperfect passed away. And then last, now that perfection is the access into the presence of God. The perfection of Jesus is the doorway to God's presence. That's his result, access. That's our second word. Look at the second half of verse 19. The law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Look at verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Without perfection, access is impossible. You cannot stand before the Lord with even a shred of imperfection and hope to be acceptable to Him. Comparable goodness is not the answer when you stand before the Lord. He's not going to kind of look back over the course of your life and say, you know what, I think you were pretty good. I'll call you perfect. Welcome into my eternal presence. Rest in the eternal joy of my existence. That's not going to happen. He's not going to overlook the blowout on the highway, the burned food, and Johnny's meltdown while you're opening presents. He demands perfection, total perfection. And so without something that can provide us that, we have no hope. But the author of Hebrews is reminding us there's a guarantee of a better covenant. We have hope because of the perfection of Jesus. He's the doorway of access to God's presence. And that perfection found in Jesus is made available to us. We're going to look at the last few verses of this passage on Christmas Eve, but this is too good to just pass up right now. So if you look down into verse 25, this is about Jesus. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Yours might say, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. The word there is pantelais, P-A-N-T-E-L-E-S. He is able to save perfectly, teleosis, those who come to God through him. Perfect. He is able to give perfect access to those who come to God through his perfection. No Levitical priest could do that. And now Jesus does it so perfectly and so completely that we don't need another priest in any fashion at all. His perfection is the doorway into God's presence. David looked forward to it in 1000 BC. A priest king who would come in the order of Melchizedek. Priest and king together peace and righteousness, time and timelessness, blessing and honor. Isaiah, in 250 years after David, still looking forward to it. The same exact thing. Wonderful counselor, the government on his shoulders, justice and righteousness, all found in one person. Jesus puts skin on it in the manger. King of kings and great high priest. King of righteousness, prince of peace. Timelessness into time. Ultimate blessing 
immediate honor. That's the picture that Hebrews 7 is trying to paint. You can't be made perfect by any other means, but the perfect one came, and now he can perfectly save you. A beautiful picture. The point is not to understand Melchizedek. In fact, he's just the running background so that Jesus will stand out in striking relief in front of him. It's beautiful. What in the world does that have to do for, with today? And specifically, what do we do with that in light of Christmas? Well, let me go back to where we started. Jesus' birth changed everything. The atmosphere shifted. The very air around God and humanity's approach to God completely changed. It was so electric that angels appeared and burst into praise. It was so staggering that the universe put forth a different star that pointed to his birthplace. Kings trembled. Shepherds were in awe. Why? The priest king had arrived. He was here, and with him he was bringing perfection, completion, accomplishment, fulfillment. With him came teleosis. And thanks to that perfection, there's access. We can approach God. In the words of Hebrews, we can approach boldly and with confidence, seeking grace and mercy. When Jesus came, everything changed, shifted entirely. Number two, Jesus will present us to the Father because the Father presented Jesus to us. When we advent, when we think about the birth of Jesus, that's what we're celebrating. One day, Jesus is going to present his children to the Father. And the reason he'll be able to do that is because the Father presented his child to us. Jesus. That's the crux of Christmas. In the push of the next few days, don't allow the simplicity and the power and the beauty of that reality to go uncelebrated. Our great high priest will absolutely do his job. He will present his people to the Father, holy, righteous, unblemished, perfected, completed, salvation accomplished, teleosis. He will do that. And the author of Hebrews is making a huge deal out of this to remind a little Jewish church that nothing in Judaism could do that for them. Only Jesus can. He is better. And today, we need the same reminder. Nothing else can do that for you. Only Christ. At Christmas, we're celebrating the coming of that reality into the world. So my encouragement for you, make a big deal out of it. Make the biggest deal out of it. Yes, if you have children, they might be most excited about the presence, but don't let that dissuade you from capitalizing on the discipleship moment. The greatest gift of all time was Jesus to humanity. The greatest gift of our lives is that we have access to the Father. We give gifts as a reflection of that supreme gift. Take the opportunity to capitalize that on that with your kids. You don't got to make it weird. It doesn't need to be 45 minutes of sermon before you open the presents, but remind them, this is why we're doing what we're doing. It's not just about what's inside the gifts. It's a reflection of the greatest gift of all time that Jesus was given to humanity and with him came perfection and access. Capitalize on that. Don't miss it with your extended family gathering or the friends that you end up celebrating with. Our gatherings 
are a picture of that first Christmas. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, shepherds, angels in a field, present together, not for the sake of being together, but for the sake of marveling at the Son, the priest king. That's why they're together. Our gatherings are a picture of eternity. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Elders gathered around the throne, heavenly beings shouting their unending praise, present together, not for the sake of being together, but for the sake of marveling at the sun. Again, not to be weird about it. While you're getting ready to carve up whatever it is you have for dinner, you don't need to stop everybody and say, now let me remind you why it is that we're together here. But there's an opportunity to celebrate that reality with your family. This is a picture. This is a beautiful picture of what happened at Jesus' birth and what will happen in all of eternity. Capitalize on that. Finally, when Jesus comes into our life, it changes everything. Everything. When Jesus came into the world, it changed everything. The old covenant moved to the new. That's coming in chapter 8. The old priesthood shifted to an eternal priesthood. That's what chapter 7 is all about. The law showing our need for a Savior gave way to grace provided by our Savior. The same is true when Jesus comes into our life. Everything changes. Maybe not instantly in an outward sense. The sanctifying process takes time. It's a lifelong endeavor that's empowered and fueled and guided by the Holy Spirit but everything changed in an eternal sense. You went from death to life, old to new. And the other things were gone. The former things passed away. And you were made new. Everything changed in an eternal sense. You went from an eternity that was going to be marked by distance from God, and you were gifted eternity in the presence of God. You didn't deserve that. You didn't earn it for yourself. Everything changed in an immediate since. Not that it changed immediately, but your immediate surroundings. Everything shifted. Your priorities shifted. Your view of life's purpose ought to have shifted. How we love people shifted. How we understand ourselves shifted. Now that might mean one of two things for you. It might mean that you had an over-elevated view of yourself, and thanks to the gospel, you now see that you are not the center of the universe. It could be, though, that when Jesus came into your life, a different shift took place. Because you were wrestling with whether or not you had any worth or any value. But the coming of Jesus tells you, you have great worth, inherent value. It shifted the way you understand yourself. Shifts the way you think about the goal of your parenting. It's not just to get them self-sufficient and push them out of the house. It's to show them who Jesus is. Help them to love the Savior. See their need for Him. Shifts the way we interact with our money, the way we use our time. The coming of Jesus into your life changes everything. Your job is to submit to that. To give yourself to the newness. To cling to Jesus as the means by which that reality has come to pass. Christmas is a chance to recalibrate if needed. Look at the baby in the manger, the priest king. Redirect your heart to the Savior. Redirect your thoughts to all the glorious change that came with him. Redirect your energies to obedience to his will. Redirect your life to the accomplishment of his purposes. All that begins by directing your gaze to the coming of the Son.
the priest king, the perfect one who's brought us access to the Lord. A thousand years before Jesus was born, David's looking for that one. 2,000 years after his birth, we're looking back at that one, but we're also adventing for a different reason. Brian, if you guys want to come on up. 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, we advent in a little bit of a different way. Yes, to celebrate remembering his birth, but we advent his second coming, at which point everything will change again. Sin and brokenness will be entirely gone. Heaven will literally come down. A new earth will be created and we will live forever in that place where brokenness no longer exists, where the sun, the radiance of the sun, Hebrews chapter one, is all the light we need to exist. And so like David saying, a thousand years before the birth of Christ, come thou long expected Jesus, we sing 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. Come thou long expected Jesus. Come back. We advent to remember the birth of Christ and to plead for the second coming of Christ where we'll dwell with him forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.